We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. This episode is sponsored by FX's Fleischman is in Trouble. Starring Jesse Eisenberg, Claire Danes, Lizzie Kaplan, and Adam Brody. This drama tells the story of recently divorced Toby Fleischman, who dives into the world of app-based dating with the kind of success he never had in his youth. Then, his ex-wife disappears, leaving him with their two children and no hint of her return. Effects's Fleischman is in trouble. Streaming November 17th, only on Hulu. Okay, ready? Think what you know, and it's about a time when you get yourself in a I want to this her ratio. Okay, though. This her ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> The only thing that scares me is that I won't I let myself down. I ain't worried about it. I got a chip on my shoulder the size of the moon. Always been there. Right? And so this is my moment to say what I've been trying to say for years, which is I choose to write for children. It's not that I don't have the ability to write for adults. And I think, and you've been around this industry, man, I think sometimes we get people look at children's literature as lesser mm-hmm. literature, and it's mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. If it weren't for the work that we do, Torrey don't exist. Right, we build the reader and the writer. Sure. These are the books that are foundational, right? Sure. And so, and no one would sleep on Judy Bloom. No one would sleep. Judy like, Bloom was a on. legend. We, we, come on, we talk about Raw Dolls and all that. these people. Raw Dolls, so on. important. Exactly. And so, I, this is my moment to say what I've been trying to say for a long time, which is this is a choice. I choose to stay in this category. I find it fulfilling. I find it rewarding. Right. I love. I love children, but also. It's a choice. I got to paint the Mona Lisa with half the palette when I'm working with young people, for young people. Now I get a full palette, but I'm used to sort of using a half, half the palette and, and mixing colors to find out how to make the Mona Lisa look like the Mona Lisa. Now I got every color in the world, and that's daunting. Jason Reynolds is one of the greatest young adult novelists working today. His new book, Stunt Boy, is like his 16th book or something. The man is a machine. He's a great writer. He's a good friend. He's a brilliant guy. I wanted to talk to him about writing and so much more for a long time. So I'm happy to finally have him here. Let's get into it. It's Jason Reynolds on Torre Show. 
you love about writing? What do I love about writing? I, you know, honestly, I think that it's it's alchemy. Alchemy. It's it's alchemy. Look, man, there's this tattoo on my finger and my hand. Twenty six. It's the number twenty six. Twenty six letters in the English alphabet. Everything you've ever written, everything you ever read, is a simple combination, a reworking of those same twenty six letters. And those and, and depending upon the sequence, can change somebody's life. Alchemy. Like that excites me every day. The mere notion that I could simply by rearranging the same letters over and over again to find the right sequence at the right moment for the right person could 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 write a law. Right? Or could bring tears to someone, or could bring laughter to some child. Alchemy. That's it. Like I, it's, it drives me crazy in the best ways. When you say alchemy, you make me think of also like when we're in the moment and we know the character and we are visualizing the moment and the characters start saying things that they want to do and say that was not your plan but mm-hmm. fits and you're like, that's, that's what it. they want to do. That's it. But all of that comes from the ability to cast a spell with 26 letters. All of it. It's the same thing. It's like music, right? 12 notes. Every song you've ever heard. Like, that's bonkers to me, <laughs> right? And that we could, and that perhaps we could like summon something that could then move on its own, that could speak on its own, that could dictate who it wants to be to us so that we can continue to find the right sequencing. And now you have a unique challenge. You've set a unique challenge for yourself in that you're speaking to young adults. Mm. And you've done that very successfully. Um, how old are you? I'm 38. So you have not been a young adult in oh, wow. well over over two <laughs> decades. Thanks. I appreciate it. <laughs> over two decades. So what do you do? Because they have they're a unique group mm. of people. Mm. I have a 14 and a 12-year-old. They think differently, they move differently, mm. and they want to laugh at us. Mm. Like we're the so how do you reclaim that? place where you can speak to them because you don't talk down to them no right you speak to them in a very authentic way mm-hmm. um so how do you how do you find that 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 place i mean i think a few things have to happen i i operate by a simple three rule uh, like these three tenets right when it comes to them humility intimacy and gratitude That's humility it. intimacy and gratitude i think that first thing one must do is listen we talk a lot to our kids. We don't listen that much. I think that I think that they have so much to say and that they're really trying to say it. They don't always have the language for it. They don't always, you know, it's like they're trying to sort it all out. And I think it requires a certain level of humility for us to give them a moment and to listen to what they're saying and to what they're not saying, right? And to tell them the things that we do not know. Um, I think when you're writing for young people, I have to enter into that space knowing that I don't know what it is to be. You're right. I don't know what it means to be 15 today. I don't know what that's like, so I should listen a little more. Like I would do if any in any other space that I am unaware of or unfamiliar with. I spend a lot of my time just listening to what they have to say, right? I'm, I hang out with them. You can't show what you don't know. You know this, right? You can't show what you don't know. So I, I put myself in situations where I'm forced to deal, even inconvenient situations where I'm forced to listen and be around this generation. From that comes a certain level of intimacy. Where are you finding the people like the, the the kids that you're going to. I mean, I'm I'm fortunate that these books have put me in these schools. 
I'm in the schools, in everybody's school. I'm in everybody's community center. I'm in everybody's prison, right? I'm there. I'm there, and I'm there to not just be the person to come and say, do this and do that. I don't have nothing to teach them. <laughs> I'm there for, to to sort of listen so that, I, so that I can better represent them on the page and bear witness to their lives. So when you're doing your events to talk about your books and your writing, you're also using that as an opportunity to stay in touch with the audience. But I don't talk about my books and writing at the events, ever. That's not what the events are. That's what I'm that's what I'm brought to the schools to do, but that's not what I do. What I do is I get up there and I tell my story. This is where I'm from. It's what I've been through. And it's a silly, funny, it's heart, it's I mean, because I tell the real story, the truth, right? Here's here's the people I lost. Right? He, I was a I was a terrible student. I struggled in school. I didn't read until I was 17 and a half. I, I didn't like to read. I, rap music was my savior. Right? I go through the whole story of my older brother. My mama did this. My daddy, all this stuff. And then at the very end of it, I'm like, and, and even though I hope you all love my story, I hope you love your stories far more. Your story is far more important than mine. My theory is a simple one, Torrey. What if we could convince young people that the stories that exist within them are just as important as the ones that exist outside of them? If we could start there then maybe they'd read a little more. And You are important. That's it. That's my theory, right? You're the one. Your story matters way more than mine or anything I've written. You talk about getting them interested in reading. This is one of the challenges mm-hmm. that, that many of them, black boys in particular, but some black girls as well, find, you know, obviously white too, but find reading boring, difficult, uninteresting, and especially when you're competing against... YouTube and TikTok, yes. et cetera, which you cannot provide the dopamine rush that no. they can. So, and, you know, and you, you are like, my books will not be boring. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? How do you compete? How do you keep the reader, the young reader interested? You only need a few seconds because you only get a few seconds. You get a few seconds, right? So in my books, I take that first line very seriously. You're going you gonna to lose them. Or you're gonna win on that first line. But once and that first line has to be a catalyst, it has to be a propellant. But once they read that first line, if it does its job, they keep going. They keep going, right? So if you look at a book, I mean all of my books, look both ways, this middle grade uh, collection of short stories. First line of the first story is this book was supposed to start like all the best books with boogers. Now, if you're 12 years old, if you're 11 years old, we in here. That's hysterical to me. Exactly. And it, I'm 50. Boogers and fart jokes don't ever get old. You, that's it. So, you, so you're starting with a hook? Always. A hook into the plot or into the sensibility of the audience? Depend, depends. Depends on the story. But sometimes, I mean, if you take a story like Ghost, Ghost starts with a Guinness Book of World Records. Right. And like going through some of the statistics about who has the most rubber duckies, who has who could blow up the most balloons with their nose. Real Guinness World Record statistics. And then it goes into a violent moment that this kid experiences with his father. So you, you're, you're thrown right into the hot seat. By the time you finish the first three pages, it's you're, you're it's riveting. You win it. Right. Because that's what we're competing with. YouTube, uh, uh, you know, Fortnite, where all of these sort of the video games, the all of these things. I'm not interested in trying to compete. I'm trying to work with him. I'm trying to take their model. Well, how does how does rap music was for, was my way in? You know how rap music worked? It worked because when the bass when the beat drop, a minute first verse come in, a minute first line like it's it's the same thing, and then that hook come in, and now I'm singing along. 
what if we could transmute that? What if we could figure out how to put that in, in literature and say like, all right, well, there's a way for me. I mean, if you read my books, there's a lot of refrain. I, I go back to these, a lot of rep- repetition. I, 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 f- I play around with composition. I play around with font size. I figure out multiple ways to be stimulating on the page visually, right? So that I can compete with something like YouTube, which is a visual medium. Are you thinking about a specific reader in terms of this is 12 to 14 years old? Because 12 to 14 is different than 15, 16. Sure. Different than 10 to 12. Sure. Are you are you thinking about that and you know the the the, the vocabulary that they have so you don't like lose them? Of or? course, of course. If I'm if I'm writing for, you know, if it's a, a YA novel and you're looking at 14 or 12 to 18 or 14 to 18, it's a different sensibility, right? And and the language will be different. Um, and and the pace will be different, right? But if I'm talking that that 10 to 12, 9 to 12, and right now six to eight. Right, then you have to figure out new ways, and you have to speed the pace a little bit. But but you don't have to sacrifice sophistication, and that's my other thing. Kids kids are sophisticated, and there are, there are ways for us to be funny and light, or to be heavy, right, and still have second layers and third layers, right, tertiary plots. All of that's in these books: symbolism, metaphors, right. I want to figure out ways where young people can read my books at twelve and love them, read them again at seventeen, and it's a completely different book. Read them again at twenty five, and it's a completely completely different book because of the layering that goes into each story. Mm. Mm. So wait, so we're kind of getting at this, but what's the difference between good YA writing and great mm. YA writing? I mean, everyone has their different answers. I think for me, great YA writing um, is writers who recognize that teenagers are whole people and they write with that in mind. They recognize that they're, they're not to be sort of pandered to uh, or talked down to. Um, they can handle the tough stuff without you wagging the dog, right? So the, the, just because there are problems in novels doesn't mean it has to be a problem novel. Uh, it's a story. It's a narrative where there's conflict, and that conflict can be as heavy as you want it to be, right? It can be a story about, it could be race, right? It could be traumatic racial stuff. It could be traumatic sexual stuff. All of that's possible because that's what's happening in their lives. But we have to figure out how to write it in a way where it comes at them right at eye level, right? It's, it's literally piercing their actual identities and not sort of who we want them to be or who we think they are. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real 
on TV, and that made me want to do it too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of Blackness. Each of NPR's Black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. All right. It's like, how do we figure out how to hit this thing right where they are so that they can say this person recognizes me as a person, not as a child? Because if you're 16, you don't want to be seen as a child. Right. Right. Uh, but you, and, you, and you don't want cliche. Even at 12. Even at 12. You don't want cliche. And I think those are the, the, the elements that make for like great. I mean, the, the same things that make for great writing in general. Sure. You can play around with all of the composition, sophistication, plot line, structure. You can do all of that. And they want it. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. I'm curious about the first sentence philosophy. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other first sentences that you look back on or like, okay, that one, that one, you really did the thing and you really, you really grabbed them. I mean, I think about um, my very first novel, When I Was the Greatest. The first line, is, it starts with dialogue, and they're playing Would You Rather, right? So it begins with something that they all know, right? Would you rather lick the street or, right? It's like, I think the, I think the first line is like, would you rather lick the street or have shit breath forever? <laughs> now, if you're a kid, one, you're happy to see cursing at the beginning of a book, and two, you recognize would you rather. And I remember having a meeting with the publishing company and 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 we and talking about how, like, you know, this book starts with swearing. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. Because if I'm 16 or 14, I'm immediately like, oh, okay, I'm in it. I want this. Right? And to see kids that are in Brooklyn sitting on a stoop, playing this game, Laughing and joking, being silly, it's great. If Jay-Z, would you rather Jay-Z to be your big brother or you get a million dollars? That's in the book. This is how the book starts, right? And I think it worked. I mean, and then I think there's, uh, what are some of the other ones? I think, let's see, what was the both ways? Uh, I think uh, Long Way Down is, um, I think something like My Name is Will, or, you know, it's basically the introduction of the character and the, the, the end of the page is, you know, my brother was shot and killed. It's, that's the first page. 
And so you know that this whole story is about this kid trying to make a decision about whether or not he's going to get revenge for his brother's death. But it begins on the very first, it's the first line of the book, is that yesterday, the day before yesterday, my brother Sean was shot and killed. Oh, no. Actually, I think it starts with this story. No, no, it's, it begins with no one believes nothing these days. And you probably won't believe the story I'm about to tell you. But it's true. I swear it is. It really happened. It happened to me. That's the very first line. And then the second line is basically about my brother Sean was shot and killed. <laughs> I mean, you're able to communicate really, really well with a group of people who are hard to communicate with. <laughs> sure. You remind me of... Um, there was some uh, some event friends of ours were having a graduation party, and you know the adult table was full, and I was like, I'm you know I'm gonna go sit at the kid table and see what they're talking about. You sure. know my kids are there, and you know it's fourteen, eight, ten, twelve, and I'm kind of trying to get in the conversation a little bit, not in poke, but I'm. You know, and it's kind of tricky, you know. And then one of them said something about Candace, da 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 da, mm-hmm. and the other one kind of giggled. <laughs> and I said, "Who's Candace?" And now they're all dying laughing. <laughs> You've fallen into the trap, and I'm like, "What was so funny about like was she here earlier? Or was they're like ah, they're laughing at me? I don't even know what I'm saying wrong." <laughs> Right? You know you know this? No, no. I'm, wait, I'm waiting to oh, see. Oh, because, no, I mean, Candace is one of their things of, you know, like, Candace dick fit in your mouth. Like, uh, shit like that. Uh, like, yeah, 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 yeah. There's God. always, the, those jokes, they don't ever go away. No, they We not. had these nuts. We had these nuts jokes, right? That was our thing. Right? Like, and it was like, right. oh, you know, where, where you seen these? These who? These? And that was the whole thing. We were like, ah. And, and that, to me, it's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, you know. At least Candace is a real name. Yeah. I, I felt like, <laughs> damn, like, you got to be quiet. You know, there's a whole bunch from Imagine Dragons, Ligma, mm-hmm. Sigma. I mean, there's a <laughs> whole bunch of them. Because once they caught me, then I was on guard. And I'm like, well, you ain't going to catch me again. Now I know better than to ask. Yeah. But you're able to, like, you know. Well, because if that's me, then I'm, it's party time. I'm with it. So if you get me, just know that I got 30 years of them jokes. That's where I always think about it, right? I go to schools and they raise their hands sometimes and they're like, hey, you think you could roast me? And I'm like, yes, absolutely. I grew up doing this. I'm, I'm like, all right, you go go first. And I'm like, no, you go first because when I go, it's over. And then they shoot their shot and they, you know, the kids are laugh, and then it's party time. <laughs> and I love it and they love it and it's just fun. <laughs> you do a lot of juvenile prisons? Yeah. Yeah, how's that? It's wonderful and painful. Because there's one thing that you, one, one, the American juvenile justice system is, is criminal in and of itself. Yes. We're the only country in the world that has maximum security prisons for kids. Great. The only country in the world that will give life sentences to children. They like rob children of their lives. And when you go into these places, when those little babies walk in the room, what you will see is a child. Not a criminal, not a gangster, right? Not a G, a child, peach fuzz. That's what you will see. And they sit down and we have, con- and you know, they try to play tough and they posture because they have to. But by the end of it, we're just having real conversations about life, you know. And I talk to them the way I would talk to my own little brother. And we talk about how, you know, and I, and I, and I tell them things that, 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 look, I don't care what it takes to get the point across. I'll do anything. I'll say anything if it means getting the point across. So I say things like, hey, listen, man, y'all think it's, that's about their girlfriends, you know, and I'm like, yo, y'all got girlfriends or y'all got, you know, what's happening outside? Oh, I got a girlfriend. Some of them be lying. 
and it's cool. And I was like, cool, you miss your girlfriend? Oh, yeah, I miss her. I miss her for all the reasons that you would think a kid would say, they, a 14-year-old would say they miss their girlfriend. I said, let me tell you something. Your 14-year-old girlfriend, she cool, but you have no idea how cool she's going to be at 30. So you got to stay out. It gets better. Your girlfriend going to get better. Your relationship going to get better. Everything you love about her going to get better. Wait till she 30. They're like, oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, what happened at 30? She's going to smell different. Right? And we have, this is a real thing that we're talking about. Now, look, do, do I always find this to be appropriate? Nope. But do I care? No. I could care less. Because at the end of the day, I'll do anything for them to know that life is better outside. Anything for them to know that somebody loved them outside, that life could be better for you. Right? That there's something to look forward to, even if it's just what women are at 30. You know, whatever it takes, right? Like, and, and that's really how it goes, man. And I love, I love them, and I want to make sure that they know that there's someone who loves them on the outside of the wall. You wrote um, about Miles Morales, mm-hmm. young Spider-Man, young black, brown Spider-Man, before the movie. Before the movie. But what did Mar- Marvel come to you mm-hmm. and said, can you please blacken up Spider-Man for us or do your Spider-Man? Marvel came to me and said um, that Miles Morales had been written, the comic book had been out, um, but they wanted to novelize it and they wanted me to do it because it, uh, the cultural touchstones weren't there. The cultural texture wasn't in the comic. Um, you know, like, and shout out to Brian Michael Bendis who created Miles Morales because I think he did a wonderful job. But I also think that there, you, don't, you don't know what you don't know. Right. There are certain there are specific things about I mean, not only is he black and Puerto Rican, he black and Puerto Rican from Brooklyn. It's a very like I mean, he's drenched in culture. And so they called me and said, can you you get to create your your own origin story? You get to kind of redo this thing. Well, and I was like, all right, well, there's a whole lot of things that I would do differently just because his cultural dynamic changes who he is. as a suit. It has to. Right. Has to. Right. So, for instance, in my mind, I'm thinking. You know, when I was growing up, like Kevin Durant grew up around the corner, not too far from me. Kevin Durant was a superhero, right, to us. Because what Kevin Durant did was he was able to sort of like ascend from our community and become something much bigger. But I don't know what it must have been like for Kevin to wake up one day rich. That's a superpower that no one prepares you for. Being rich. Yeah. And so if you and so if you tell me like Peter Parker's whole thing was with great power comes great responsibility, ain't no way somebody could have came to Kevin Durant and said, "Hey, I know you're filthy rich now, but now you have great responsibility." The truth is, is no seventeen-year-old wants to hear that. Once I got a superpower, the last thing on my mind is being responsible with it. So I wanted to figure out how to really ground him in like reality, right? The other thing is, what does it mean to be a superhero in a community where maybe you don't see that very often? What's the guilt you feel? Survivor's remorse. Right? I wanted to add that into his story. And furthermore, the superpowers that we usually look at, like Spidey sense, ain't nothing to black kids growing up in the black community. <laughs> right? That ain't no, I don't need a spider to bite me for that. My mama gave me that. My community gives me intuition. I know when the bad thing is coming, coming way before it gets there. <laughs> I've been gone. Like I've, you know? and so, but that's cultural stuff that shifts the way we think about the superpowers. You know? And I wanted to sort of add all of that into the tale. Where... Did you also add in, you know, other things, you know, the sort of the hip hop and just the sense of him um, as a person? Because he's he's fundamentally different than the traditional Peter Parker in a lot of really interesting ways. Yeah. 
I mean, I think that like that stuff to me was it was by default, just simply based on his community, his family dynamics, all of those things, right? Like I, there's a scene in my version where he's like at the park and he's at the playground playing basketball and he's got on like, or his friend has on Air Max, like Air Max 90 infrareds, right? And that shoe, when it first came out, I never forget, you know, the Air Max way with that that bright red pinkish uh, accent on it and me mentioning that. And it's funny because I meet kids all the time like, yo, you put, the, you put the infrareds in the book, right? This is stuff that like, these small things that I think are just rooted in 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 city life and in black city life, especially of, a, of you know, and and that has been transcended all generations, right? The sneaker culture is transcendent now, mm-hmm. right? From generation to generation, the Jordan mm-hmm. ones is the most popular shoe. Mm-hmm. Jordan ones more popular now than it was when they came out, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And thinking mm-hmm. about all these things, which but are, they were hot then. They were hot then. I mean, they, they changed the world. It changed you, everything. You, people were getting robbed, of course, for them. And, and then to sort of think about how sneaker culture and hip hop culture were coming up at the same time, fashion and hip hop. Hip hop became cu- the, the cultural sort of like linchpin. For so many of us, and and of, of a certain generation or a certain few generations, where like our clothes, our the way we spoke, the way we walked, everything was sort of tied in together. It became the most dominant force in our culture, and so to think about Spider Man and to drop him right down in the middle of that because his parents would be of that. His parents, like it's weird because he's the like I could be his father, age wise, age wise, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which means that everything that I grew up with, right? If I'm his daddy. Age-wise, I could be his father. Then that means that this kid, there are certain things this kid would know that he would have. Simply because you tell him he he being raised in my house. He, my mom's music is Motown, right? But when my little brother's hanging out with me, we listening to Biggie, right? That's different, right? (laughs) Right? Like that's a different thing, right? Right? Did you make his dad a cop? No, I would never. I would have never. That's not. That's not in me, right? But, and I have no control over that. That's not, you know what I mean? So they took your version into the movie? Were you involved in the movie? Nope. Did you want to be involved in the movie? Yep. And oh, But that was not? Not an option. We're doing something different. Yeah. Thank you for your service. What I think they took from me is his personality and the cultural stuff and like the, like the texture of who he was. But I would have never, I, you know. So did you recognize Miles on screen? Like, that's my boy? For sure. To a certain extent? Or did, did they change it in ways you were like, I've done that? I, honestly, to their credit, I think that they changed some things, but I think I think they got him right. But you didn't like that his dad was a cop? No. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. I mean, I'm being honest with you, man. I, no, I'm with it. I'm know, with I it. Didn't, I didn't like it. It served an interesting function. I mean, you know, we have our feelings. I'm sure we agree (laughs) on the police. But I think narratively it served a certain function in terms of his dad as part of the institution that is protecting the streets or meant to. And he's part of the actual protecting of the streets. Right. I think in my version, because in the original version of Miles, his father and his uncle, they were... They were criminals. That's what I inherited. When I took the story on, that's the way that they were written. And at first I was like, ugh, I don't like this. But it gave me an opportunity to discuss how black men are criminalized. And so my whole thing was like, if I'm going to keep it this way, then I get to tell some backstory about how this happens. And that not everybody who be, who is, quote unquote, a criminal uh, is a bad person. But there's criminalization that happens that is no fault 
uh, oftentimes of our own, right? There's all sorts of policies in place. There's also, I mean, when you take into poverty, politics, racism, uh, like oh, there's all kinds of things that happen. And so I wanted to create that storyline where his father is reformed and is a, lives a good life and is fine. But his past is one through the prison school. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alamin a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is Mosi Secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from Tinderfoot TV Campside Media and iHeart Podcasts Radical is available now Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Food and Prison Pipeline, which is what my version is about, and you explain why his father's been criminalized. If you have Miles's father is a criminal, mm-hmm. then of course he has to come to the fork of do I yep. arrest or whatever my dad or confront my dad. It's even in the story where he says, like, can I? do I even deserve to be... A superhero. Like, is, is, is what my family been through, is that in my blood? Right? Am I able to turn that corner? Right? Am I, able, am I able to break that cycle? Do I have that in me? Should I even be allowed to? Right? These are the questions that he's asking himself as he's being punished in school unfairly. Is he like, am I going to go the way of, like, how does this work? You know, as he is pushing back against it. Not to mention, like, his father's name, dude, I don't know. And the, you know what his father's name is? Tell me. Jefferson Davis. Mm. That wasn't my decision either. Mm. Mm. But I have to explain why. I have to contextualize that. I think that um, what you did with Ibram Kendi mm. stamped is really, really important. Um, you. Because, you know, I just wrote a thing about this. When we talk about racism, I think a lot of people mean microaggressions. Mm-hmm. And they don't, and I'm like, I don't really talk or think about microaggressions. Yeah, that hurts. But that gets down, that's like the pennies of racism. And like, we can be microaggressive toward white people. Sure. We could say fucked up things that would hurt their feelings, that would be inappropriate and racist. But when we talk about the systems that shape our lives, that constantly privilege whiteness and denigrate blackness. Blackness is constantly penalized. Whiteness is constantly rewarded. Um, you know, in all from, from criminal justice to sure. medicine to loans education. to education. Now, now we're talking about this is 
the heart of racism and the shaping of our lives and their lives. And Candy's work and has been so important in explaining that. And even explained to me as much reading as I've done on it mm. of like, you know, you can be non-racist and still benefiting from sure. white privilege. Sure. Still benefiting from racism. Um, and when we, when we explain that to younger people and help them really understand racism, now we're like really building something. Yeah, it's honestly, it's probably the best work I've done in my life in terms of my actual writing. I think it's it'll. I think it'll be the That's most. The book you think is your best? I, I think it's the. I think it's my the most important. I think it's the one that I'll leave behind. I think. I mean, I think I've written other things that I think are better written things for various. reasons. What do you reasons. think is your best written thing? Uh, that number two and number three. So, Boy in the Black Suit and As Brave as You. So, wow. fifteen, sixteen books in, but two and three. 16 books in? Mm-hmm. 15, man, 15, something like that. You seem like a slacker, dog. Hey, come on, man. Only a seven or eight. Hey, like man. 15, but 16. God damn. I've been, I've been working, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like Imani Perry of children's books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Imani, by the way. Hell you know? yeah. But yeah, like, I think that book will, you know, that'll be the book that I leave behind that might actually put a dent in the thing that we're trying, that we've been trying to put a dent in for so many yes. years. Because the shorties are ready. In a world of critical race theory being the boogeyman <laughs> for the right, mm-hmm. that book is one of those that's like caught in the crossfire. Yeah, where I for think sure. a lot of people will be like, "This is exactly what we need to not have in our schools." Sure, sure. And but I don't. So what? I know you don't care. Yeah. Because the book is reaching the right people and is is informing many minds in mm-hmm. the right way. But you, uh, do you feel like that you guys, you and Dr. Kent are, are in that struggle where there's, there's libraries and what have you. They're like, yo, we had to get the book out because the parents was mad. Cause da, 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 da. Yeah, but I've been through it before this. I went through it all American boys. I went, I mean, I went through it when I was the greatest. I, I got been through this so many times with books, my books being censored or banned and challenged that I'm just kind of like, look, the kids are resilient. They're going to find it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and this is the insecurity of adults. They got nothing to do with these kids. This don't even have nothing to do with the protection of these kids. No, no, no. You know what I mean? No, this no. is about politics, and this is about adult insecurity, and this is about what happens when your daughter comes home and challenges your entire existence, challenges the entire history and present and future that you stand on so cavalierly, and you don't have any answers for her, and it creates more insecurity. I get it. I get the fear. I, seriously, I get, I get the fear. fear. It's always fear. It's fear. So your day, what's your day? How long, each of these books take how long about? It depends. They, it varies, man. Some books take years. Some books take months. Some books, I mean, just, you know, it's like you know, writing, man. It's a process. Are you like get up at nine? And six. Six. Get up at six? Yeah. Start writing by 6.30? 7.30. I gotta six. exercise. I gotta, I gotta get up, exercise, work my body out. You run? I, I cycle. You Dude, bike? I, yeah, yeah, inside now because in Peloton the, the, changed our lives. You in, know what I mean? Oh, you on the Peloton? Oh, man, hard body. Were you on the tights and the helmet and all that? Yeah, yeah. When I was living in New York, I had tights and the helmet and all of that. <laughs> you know, I hit the hit Prospect Park and get it in. But now I'm on the Peloton. I just hit the 45-minute uh, class, mute it, and turn the resistance up to 100. That's it, every morning. So Peloton in the morning. Peloton in the morning. Get the heart going. Yeah, coffee, newspaper. So coffee, New York Times, every day, same thing. Peloton. Coffee, New York Times, read the paper, uh, 
And then uh, around 7.30, 8 o'clock, it's party time. And I write from about 8 to 2 if I don't have inter- interruptions from people like, you know, publicists and you know, all, the, all, the, all the talking heads, all the, my, my wonderful, all the people who take good care of me. So depending upon what's happening. 8 to 2. 8 to 2. You're grinding it out. Working. Can Every you, day. Can you, are you focused during that time? Most of the time. But when I'm not focused, I just get up, take a walk. Because I'll like... Trying to grind, <laughs> go you know, go on the internet to look for something for the topic, and then of course get now I'm in this rabbit hole. It had nothing to do with what you're, you know, or you play a game on the phone because I got you know mentally tired, you know, whatever. Yeah. I mean, I got a whole. I got first of all, I got a, a separate phone. What do you mean? I have a separate phone. So when I'm writing, I turn my phone. Either I try to turn it off or I put it somewhere where I can't get it and I have a separate phone with a separate number that like five people have. The bat phone. I have a bat phone. And, so, and there's no there's nothing on the phone. You can just dial and it take calls. You so can't you there's really no social, need it's not a smartphone. Then call call the bat phone. This phone. Yeah. But how often do we I mean, how often is there an emergency that have to not break often. you away from your writing? Not often. My mom could be something. She's seventy six. See, anything. but you're good because are you married? No. See, you know, Mary, you don't have kids. Uh, exactly. You can be like, yo, I'm writing. I, Everybody shut up. Exactly. Right. So eight to two. Eight to two. Sitting there. Just eight to two. Eight to two. What about after two? Before COVID, I go to the movies every day. Every day? Almost every day, yeah. So you see everything. Everything. I was walking around the corner. I was literally just walking around the corner to the movie theater, whatever's playing. And it's popping. Every Friday, you know, recycles itself. New movies come out. And so you you were going to see a movie every day? Every every day or every other day, yeah. What do you love? Whatever is, I'm open. But I mean, like, what what are some of your, let's say, some of your favorite movies? Mm, do the right thing. Of course. Uh, what am I, what am, uh, gosh, there's so many good ones, man. I watch a lot of foreign films. Um, Godfather 2. Mm, of course. Of course. Classics. Uh, all those films, man. I just love that stuff. I think they're just so well written, man. You know, you look at like King of New York, you look at Goodfellas, like it's just brilliant. But I also love like a Fredo, good I knew it was oh, you. Oh my God. Brilliant. <laughs> but I also love like, you know, The Shining. Mm-hmm. It's brilliant. Mm-hmm. And then like some of the newer stuff. I mean, and then like random movies. Like, have you ever seen, um, oh gosh. I don't, it's it's a Polanski film, which I know is dicey. I know, but Carnage, <laughs> Carnage. You ever seen this film, Carnage? I don't think so. Who's in it? What's that guy, Riley, the comedian? Something Riley. Ted, what's his name? He's he was in uh he was in Step Brothers with Will Ferrell. Okay. He's the other guy in the movie. He's okay. like a he's like a silly like a goofy dude. Okay. But he's in this film, and it's based on a play, and the whole movie takes place in the living room of an apartment. The whole film. They're just in the living room. It's two couples in the living room, and they're just fighting for like an hour and a half. Okay. The whole movie. Okay. And it's about it's about parents arguing about whose child was wrong in, in, in an altercation between their children. Okay. So they're meeting up to have this conversation. It's genius. Oh, John C. Riley. John oh, C. Yeah, Riley. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's genius. Dope. He's, he's dope. dope. He's dope. It's crazy. Uh, so I love stuff Jody like that. Foster anything that's really, anything that's going to, because the reason I do this, by the way, is because this is the equivalent of like, your cool down laps after running or after playing a sport. Interesting. Be- because I'm still working. It's just passive. I'm st- I'm just trying to pay attention to how people are telling stories. Character development, right? Camera shot. I'm a big Hitchcock guy. Love Hitchcock. A lot of my work is based on like Hitchcock directorial tactics. 
So a lot of my decision-making on the page is based on Hitchcock's decision-making with the camera. Interesting. So, wait a minute. I find I'm working on a script, and I find that it is a fundamentally different exercise. It is. But perhaps also changing me in the future for the writing, right? Because when we're writing for the page, the words, the flow of the sentences, Mm -hmm. you know, the rhythm, like all that stuff matters. Mm -hmm. For the script... None of that matters. Right. You guys got to create pictures that the director can see and the actors can see to make into images. Correct. So are you so are are, are you are you getting all this film lore mm-hmm. in your mind and then creating pictures on the page? So I'm yes, but I'm I'm thinking about it frame for frame like they are. So like if I'm looking at mm-hmm. a prime example, let's take Hitchcock. You're looking at a Hitchcock film. Hitchcock will make a decision to cause discomfort in the viewer, mm-hmm. not by doing anything uncomfortable, not by doing anything even scary, just by tilting the camera frame, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Tilt the frame a little bit and that dissonance will cause discomfort in the body of the viewer without them understanding why. On the page, what that might look like is an elongated space. Right, the, the, the distance between this word and this word might not be a single space. It might be a few tabs. And I get to, in that moment, make a decision, cause the reader to, in that space, the reader's mind will, will account for it and it'll cause dissonance or move the word down a little bit, just a little bit. Ali Smith is a, a person who does this, this is the, the European writer, I think she's Scottish. Uh, she wrote like the seasonal books, autumn, winter, summer, uh, spring, right? And she does a lot of this kind of stuff. It's a little experimental. Some people might call it postmodern. But I'm interested in thinking about language and composition, like the page itself as a canvas or a frame, and that I get to manipulate this, right? Hitchcock says, I love this, he says, um, he says, look, they were interviewing him, and they're like, yo, you have this scene where the, the couple is kissing for like 12 minutes. You just have them kissing, and it's really strange and awkward, and and why would you make this choice? And he says, oh, well, you could do that. You could have these people just kissing for way longer than they probably should be. But the reason why the viewer won't turn away is not because they're kissing. It's because the viewer has been made privy to the fact that there is also a time bomb under the bed. Right? And so how do you do that on the page? How can you figure out ways to, to or a, a face is not a face until I put light on it. That's a Hitchcock, a Hitchcock quote. A face is not a face until I put light on it. And so figuring out ways to do all of this is what I'm interested in. How can I manipulate composition, not just language, but where the language is, where it exists on the page, um, which is what Long Way Down is all about, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, like a lot of, I mean, Look Both Ways has all these moments where the, the words, sort of, sort of, the line is breaking in the middle of sentences as if it were verse, but it's not. It's just, I get to decide to break a sentence here if I feel like it, mm-hmm. if it's going to serve the story subconsciously to the reader. You see Zola? I did. Zola was the shit. Amazing. Brilliant. <laughs> and to take it from tweets. And to use like and to use all of the like the sound of the tweeting, right? Yeah. Like to hear the bird, the, the toot toot, like that that sound that it makes. Genius. But it was such a dynamic story that had so much movement and surprise and and it was a very self-conscious story. Exactly. I'm gonna tell you a story. And then in the middle of the story, it stops and somebody else starts telling their story, which is like, I, I disagree with her story. And it doesn't really end. It stops. It's resolved. 
That was really important for me, that it resolved but didn't end. Did you know that these characters will go on and have a life after this. But this weekend has resolved. She has reclaimed her freedom. She will be let go. Right. She won't be controlled by this man anymore. But. but right. But. but <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Life continues. But life continues. And I'm all about that. All my books end. They just sort of end. Kids hate me for this. I get all kind of messages. What happened at the end? I feel like my book is missing a page. I hear this all the time. I feel like my book is missing a page. And I'm like, no, no, that's just the end. For kids, right? Like imagine children's books without it being tied up. No, that ain't life. And also I need you to activate your imagination, young person. You do a little work now. No, wait a minute. Because I get a lot of editors who like, think it's ended you need another paragraph or something and you gotta so do you get the editors saying like eh, jason you're not my very first uh novel um i ended ended i mean i ended it and my editor said hey kid i'm gonna give you the advice that will change your change your career for from here on out you are very good at what you do it's a shame that you don't trust yourself you're giving us 300 pages. It's a shame that you don't trust yourself enough, your ability enough to allow these readers to do a little work for you, that you've done enough for them to, to know what to, to take it from here. That's all I needed to hear. And so I started to chop whole chapters off, right all the way to the end and chop that chapter off. We ended a little early, ended the chapter early. That was my editor's note, and it was a gift. That was my first book. She never had to tell me that again. It was a gift to me. Are you working with the same editor? Yeah. The whole 16 books? Except for Stamped and Spider-Man. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So do you have a multi-book deal? That's a whole complicated conversation, Tori. Let's do it. <laughs> well, let's do it. I had a, this is the way it worked. It was, when I got in, it was a, it was a two-book deal. By the time that the first book had come out, I had already written the third book. So then they were like, well, we'll give you a third book deal. And by the time the first book had sort of earned its way toward the end of that year, I had written two more. Because this is all I do. I don't have no, this is, like you said, I don't have no, no kids. No like, this is all I'm doing. And so it's like I'm just sitting, I'm just working, and I had so much I wanted to say. So by the time, like, the second book comes out, we're five books in, six books in, right? Like, we're like, and they had to, we just kept sort of getting the deals because at the time, I was so afraid that they would close the door on me, right? And this is the other thing about racism, right? It's like I'm just so... You know, you get your shot. You're like, I'm, I'm gonna knock the hinge. I'm gonna knock the, the door off the hinges. I'm gonna force their hand, and that's what happened. And before you knew it, we're we're we're, we're signed up for ten books, eleven books, and there's only two or three out. But we rocking at this point. So you're sixteen books with the same publisher, with the exception Four, of the which, yeah. of the two, which are separate mm-hmm. or obvious. Fourteen books with the same publisher. Mm-hmm. There's an early one too. That's for Harper. So they're technically thirteen with the same publisher. Yep. And you are, you are finishing a book and then bringing it to them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't do, I don't do spec. Yeah, everything is on like complete novels. I'm turning in whole novels. See, like I don't want to write that much. Yeah, I want to write a proposal and be paid, and then get paid. <laughs> but you finish the book and then say, "Hey, I did this. Yeah. Hit me up for, hit me up for this." Mm-hmm. I don't want the pressure of, of owing nobody nothing. I don't want that pressure, man. It messes up my writing, man. My process, man. You gonna you gonna pay me now? I got now. I got to think about making you your money back instead of making the thing I want to make. 
And so I, I, I do what I want to do. And then I say, here's what I've done. Y'all rocking with it or y'all not rocking with it, right? But, you know, this is what, that's what it is. Have they ever said, what? There's one book that will never, that they turned, that wasn't published. One book they turned down. Yeah. Can you say why? I don't know why. They must have. I've never asked about it. We just rolled past it. It's an interesting thing because there were so many books that were signed up that it was basically like sequencing. And it was like, all right, next step is going to be this one. Next step is going to be this one. Right. And that book kind of got swept and it just was never published. And we just never just we never spoke about it. It was one of those things where it was kind of like, huh? But you felt like they were like, we don't like this one. Yeah, because it would have been put in a sequence. There was no reason to skip it unless they didn't want it. And you didn't ask? You spent yeah. six months or whatever on the baby. Yeah, it'll find its way. So you, this is years ago. That was number, book number three or four. This is years and years. This is back in 14, 15. And just, it'll find its way somewhere else. It may not even be a book. Maybe it'll be a play. Or maybe it'll be a movie or something else. Do you aspire to write plays, write movies, do something different? Of course. Not do something different, but I don't think I'll ever leave the form alone, the, the book form alone. I don't. I, I love writing novels, man. I love it. But I, but I also just love storytelling in general. I put it where it goes. So if it's film, if it's a play, if it's, uh, I, I'd write jingles. I don't, you know, I'm not. I don't care. Like I really just, I'm, I'm obsessed with narrative. I just like story, man. Story is is um, it's an amazing. It's way all we to have. It's all we have. This communicate. Is our, this is our actual currency. It's the most expensive thing either of us will ever own. You know, mm-hmm. I've I noticed when I was young that if we all went somewhere when we came back, that I was better able than all the other kids, four, five, six years old. I'm better than other kids at explaining to the adults, be it my parents, mm-hmm. teachers, who are other parents. This is what happened, <laughs> right? And not this is what happened to me. You know, and not just sequencing the event, but like this is the experience that the group had. Yeah. And these are the moments in the experience that are of relevance to other people, not just the inside joke that we had that was right. just for us. That that doesn't travel. But like, you know, the lady said this and then somebody tripped and then this happened and this is what the birthday, this is the story of the birthday party. Right. And from there I was like, Huh. Like I really like stories and I get telling stories really. So did you have that kind of a moment of like, I'm a good storyteller? No, man. It came much later for me. For me, it was, you know, 10 years old, I read liner notes. And I realized you have to tell the kids uh, what liner notes. And I always do when I'm in school. You know what I mean? The people listening to this. We don't do liner notes anymore. I I love liner notes. I know, man. But you know, back in the day, you go to the store, you get your cassette tape. You know, at least in my generation was cassette tapes. My older brother was records. You get your cassette tape, you come home, you open it up, and you had your liner notes. That that pamphlet that would say, first of all, give credit to everyone who did everything on the album. You thank you notes in there, and you realize that this person knows this person, and then you know, and when you also had your lyrics. Maybe some writing. Oh my about goodness, the pictures, the, all the pictures. The, this is what we were thinking about. Incredible. And, yeah, yeah. Public enemy used to drop lyric the lyrics. To the records, mm-hmm. in which was really important because before the internet, this is how you get the lyrics. How do I know what you're saying? That's I it. I couldn't catch all the words, and the words are important. And that was it, man. I was reading Queen Latifah lyrics. And so was Latifah the first one that really sparked it for you? Mm-hmm. Because she was the first one I owned. 
Black Rain was my first, that was my first one. And I remember reading those lyrics and realizing that there's a connection between what she's doing and, and the poetry that they're trying to, you know, you got to memorize, you know, you know, I Too Am America, right? Or was it Lindy Hop? No, what was it? Uh, remember Lindy Sings? You got to memorize these poems. And I'm thinking like, but this and this seem awfully similar because they look similar on the page, right? Latifah, because it's verse, it's verse, chorus, verse, right? It's written in stanza. I'm thinking to myself like, man, I'm a little boy and I've fallen in love with the way it looked and the way it sounded and I can read the words. And so poetry became the thing for me. And I love poetry. And the same year that I discovered this, my grandmother dies and I mimic what I'm reading and I write this poem for my mom. So this is the first time that I'd ever heard my mother cry. And that first time is a doozy. The first time you hear your mother weak or you hear her vulnerable, it's a complicated thing. It's tough. It almost sounds like something that you've never heard. Like it's an, undescri- an indescribable sound, right? And so I write this poem to make her feel better. And she prints it on the back of the funeral program of my grandmother's funeral. And they have all my cousins come up to me and be like, hey, that thing you wrote for your, for grandma, that thing you wrote for auntie, that thing you wrote, man, that, it made me feel better. And so now my little boy who recognizes the power of language and became obsessed with that. And that is what started it for me, right? And then later on down the line, it was and, the story. And there were more poems more as poems. your mother's other siblings, brothers and sisters Everybody passed starts to die. Away. And I'm the one who has to do the poems now. And so the first 10 things I write are all about death and true griot tradition, right? That's what the griots did traditionally. They performed death rituals. And the storytelling at the chorus and all that was happening at the death rituals. And, and that's what happened to me. It was like I'm always on the stage reading the poems I'm writing for my, for my lost loved ones as a generation passes away. And from there, it sort of becomes another thing. So when did, yeah, well, when did it become I'm a good storyteller? When I was like 25, it took a while for me because I never wanted to write novels. I always felt like they were, I didn't like to read them as a kid. I, I, they were intimidating to me. Um, I struggled with them. And so I had an editor, my very first editor when I was 21. I got signed to Harper when I was like 20, 21 for poetry. And, um, wow. and my editor, Joanna Kotler, who took a liking to me, introduced me to the children's world. She's the one who said that this is going to be YA. And I used to be like, I don't understand why this isn't for adults. I look back now and it's because I was a young adult, right? I I naturally was younger. So you weren't trying to be YA. No. The editor noticed. I was young. I was 21. This is going to fit for this. Yeah. This is a, he's a kid. He's 21. His tone is naturally bent to a younger audience because he is a younger audience. He is a younger person. And so she categorized me as young adult. And this book comes out, a book that I collaborated with my dear friend, Jason Griffin, my college roommate. We made this thing. And in that process, she said, she taught me story arc. In the process of making this book, she's like, I'm going to teach you how to like create arc. And I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And she's like, I know, but I'm going to show you. She said, because one day you're going to write novels. I said, no, I'm not, because I don't have the education for it. And she said, oh, don't worry. Your intuition will take you farther than your education ever will. And so at Ooh. 25, 26 is when I began. Christopher Myers, who you know, I think. Do you know Chris Myers? You know Walter Dean Myers, the OG. Like he wrote Monster. He wrote a lot of these books from, from you. It would have been your generation's children's books. Monster from Monster. Sanyika Shakur. Monster. No, 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 no. Not Monster Cody. Monster from... 
they just did a movie. Uh, I think Tony Lewis Lee just did a movie about the, the, about this book. And it's, it was the first book about like a kid in the court system. Okay. And and if he's innocent or not, and how the, the court system works when it comes to young black boys. But he wrote a bunch of, he wrote, he's the dude who wrote The Young Landlords, which eventually became the television show 227. Okay. Right? okay. okay. His son, Christopher Myers, who's a brilliant artist in his own right and writer in his own right, is one of my best friends. And he's the one who sort of challenged me to write a novel based on the fact that his father, who had been doing the very work I'm doing now for 30 years before me, uh, was getting older. And he was like, hey, somebody got to pick that mantle up. And I was like, all right, I'll give it a shot. And I wrote When I Was the Greatest, standing at the cash register of the clothing store I worked at <laughs> in Soho, <laughs> in New York City way. You know? What was that, Lord and Taylor? Rag and Bone. Rag and Bone. I when they were young, when they were a new company. I mean, I managed that store. I think, man. I think this. I think yeah, these are rag and bone <laughs> pants. Yeah, I love man. rag and bone. Yeah, man. I know you were there. Um, everybody who comes here, ask them what does being black mean to you, mm. and where does it show up in the work? And it's very much a part of your work. It is. You know, uh, for me, I think that being black. Man, it's everything, man. I, it's so funny because the older I get, I almost feel like people are trying to pull me away. People are trying to say like, well, you're, it can't be your identity. Blackness can't be it. And I'm like, mm, but it can. Why not? Yeah. Like, I love the fact people are like, are you, a, do you, you call yourself a writer who happens to be black or a black writer? A black writer. I'm totally, I'm totally good with that. Like, I think um, knowing what I know, having the mother that I have and the stories that come out, out of that woman... Uh, having the history that I have, man, I feel like a giant every day of my life. A giant. Blackness, I think that the way blackness, the way the way that blackness is sort of, um, uh, the way people bump up against blackness, it could either make you feel small or it could make you feel mega. Uh, and for me, it makes me feel massive in the world. Massive. No matter what we go through, I feel like a giant. Because I feel like I am the product of resilience. Survivors. And not just survivors. We've, we've thrived. Thrived. Right? And uh, I feel like I got two vertebrae. Born with two backbones. That's how I truly feel, man. And so how does it show itself in my work? It's everywhere. And it's, it, it shows itself so much in my work that I never, I rarely have to even say that the characters are black. It is the default. And the way that we think about white default in most literature, there's so many people who come to me and say, like, yo, your work defaults black. Mm. And to me, that's the real work, right? That's the real gift. I ain't got to say these people black. They default black. They default black. Imagine a world where characters, where, where kids can read books and be like, yeah, they default black mm. instead of defaulting white. Mm. To me, that's like, hey, if I, could, if I could leave that behind, it's like, shh. You're kind of relating to how I think about it in terms of I feel like I stand on the shoulders of the people who came before us from the freedom fighters of all sorts to the creative writers who you know fuel oh, my direct path to mm -hmm. you know my father and mother um, but you feel very tangibly that you are standing on people's shoulders and they have lifted you up into a space and you have to give something back or at least be mindful yes. of those who have lifted you up. Yes. Um, and all, all of that. And, and that's not a burden. 
That's a blessing, right? That's a gift. I'm glad that I, I am glad to be held accountable. I don't look at it as this weird oppressive thing like you should be able to do what you want. I do do what I want because of who I'm held accountable to. They made it so, right? They made it so. It is disrespectful for me not to do what I want because they're the ones who paid the price for me to have that freedom to do so. Now, does that mean that they, that I'm going to be, a, that, 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 the, that the pearly gates will be open for me to do everything I want to do? No, there's struggle there still. But my job is to attempt to do so that the generation coming after me knows, oh, no, nah, no, nah, we could do what we want. We can make what we want. We could be who we want, right? Like, I, I owe it to them. Well, now, after doing, what, 14 or 15 YA novels, mm-hmm. Why did you finally say, okay, let's do an adult novel? Didn't want to. Just didn't work for kids. I wrote it for kids. And my editor was like, hey, love it. But in order for me to, in order for us to edit it so that it works for kids, I'd, I'd have to ruin it. So this one is, a, this one you're going to have to jump. You're going to have to make that jump because it just doesn't, it's about a mouthless child, right? It's about a boy born without a mouth. And it's this whole story about that, right? And, and, and she's like, look, I love this, but it's, it just doesn't work in the space for this particular space. You're gonna you're gonna have to sort of take that take that leap and move up, which is fine. I just write stories, brother. I wasn't you know for me it's like this is what I got. Does it work for this space? It doesn't work for this space. Cool, we'll take it up. And so, we'll, we'll so this was not supposed to be a no. YA an adult novel. No, but it is. And we'll and so and, now so when she said okay this is an adult novel, did you then have to go in and change it? To, yeah. Yeah, because even though it wasn't for kids, it wasn't quite there for adults. I needed to figure out, I had to go back and sort of tap into a different level of, even just on the line level, right? Even just on the line, like figure, like really make sure that, um, basically I was able to, to run amok in a different way, right? Like writing for young people has a certain kind of constraint that allows for a particular kind of freedom, right? So like what happens is people say like, I don't like restraints. The poet knows that restraint is what gives them the freedom to do whatever they want to do. But you've got to have a boundary. And, and children's literature gives you that boundary in a way that I think most of us don't actually exploit in the way we should, right? You have the boundaries there to really run amok within the fence, within that boundary, which gives you the ultimate kind of freedom and creativity. Because you've got to be creative. You have to be creative. Does it make you nervous? Like what, the adult you, space? You, well, no, yeah, yeah. Like you've been super successful. hmm in this realm, you know, as a welterweight or whatever the case mm-hmm. may, you know, a middleweight, whatever you want to call it. No, I'm a heavyweight. Now, well, you know, <laughs> well, well, yeah, you're going into a different now class. A different class. I'm, yeah. It's a different weight class. Not mm-hmm. necessarily better or worse, but it's a different weight class. You're compared against different people. Yes. You know, I made my name over here. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, tons of awards and lots of respect over here. Mm-hmm. Have not been in this alley before. Right. Does it scare me? Yeah, sure. Sure, but not because of... Um, I, I, the only thing that scares me is that I won't I let myself down. I ain't worried about... It. I got a chip on my shoulder the size of the moon. Always been there, right? And so this is my moment to say what I've been trying to say for years, which is I choose to write for children. It's not that I don't have the ability to write for adults. And I think, and you've been around this industry, man, I think sometimes we get, people look at children's literature as lesser mm-hmm. literature, and it's mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. If it weren't for the work that we do, Torrey don't exist. 
right? We build the reader and the writer. Sure. These are the books that are foundational, right? Sure. And so, and no one would sleep on Judy Bloom. No one would sleep. Judy like, Bloom was a on. legend. We, we, come on, we talk about Raul Dawes and all that. these people. Raul Dawes, so on. important. Exactly. And so I, this is my moment to say what I've been trying to say for a long time, which is this is a choice. I choose to stay in this category. I find it fulfilling. I find it rewarding, right? I love, I love children, but also... It's a choice. I can do what I want to do. I mean, I've written shorts and all kinds of things. I mean, I'm in all kinds of collections of short stories that are adult, that are literary fiction. I have no problem with it, right? Is it is it a different calibration? Do I have to rework and re-sort of train myself in certain ways? Because there is so much space now in the adult world, right? I, I, I got to paint, paint the Mona Lisa with half the palette when I'm working with young people, for young people. Now I get a full palette. But I'm used to sort of using a half, half the palette and, and mixing colors to find out how to make the Mona Lisa look like the Mona Lisa. Now I got every color in the world. And that's daunting. That's a different thing, right? I got to figure out, now I got to be a little more, a little more, like, it's almost like too much freedom, too much space. I mean, you can get a little lost in yourself. You can become a little masturbatory. You know, I, who, who likes a navel gazer? Which so much lit fig is. And so I'm just trying to sort out where I am, I'm, I, you know, and not overthink it. I know me. I know who I am. I know my voice. I've worked very hard to develop it. And so why should I even go too far away from what I know? I fi- I'll find it. You know, I find it. Kiese, look, and I'm working with Kathy Belden, the great Kathy Belden, that's Simon & Schuster, that's Scribner, that's Kiese, that's Jasmine Ward, that, right? Like that's, you know what I mean? That's Mitch Jackson. Like that's where I am. And so I also know that these are my guys. These are my contemporaries and my OGs, right? Um, and I look at Kiese, I look at Long Division. That could have been a, a young adult novel, right? It, it walked the fine line. I look at Salvage the Bones, Jasmine. A tweak here and there, that could have been, a, it's about a 15-year-old. That could have been a young adult, right? And so I know I got my blueprint. I just got to not overthink it and, 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 and do the thing I know to do. Shoot the ball, right? Like You know how to shoot the ball, shoot the ball. That's where I am, you know. That's how I feel. We'll see how it pans out. PG County, shoot the rock. Shoot the rock, yo. Shoot the rock. Thanks so much to Jason for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. And this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington and Nick Carp. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, 
Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.